0: Amen. Thank you, Terry and Nancy, for reading that for us. I need to say this morning, you look different to me. I may look different to you. I normally preach in contacts, uh, but I'm wearing glasses this morning. And someone asked at our prayer meeting before the services, Is there something wrong with your eyes? Sadly, the answer is yes. I noticed for the past few months, I can't really read this up here. And so uh, I had to buy progressive lenses. So this is my first Sunday to try them. I got them on Friday. I'm telling you that. So in case I fall down the steps, uh, you understand why. (laughs) So uh, let's pray. And then we'll look at God's word. Father, thank you so much, uh, Lord, that we can gather together in this place, uh, that we can be together online with those who are not able to be here in person. Lord, we praise you that we're not the only church that's meeting. God, around this city, you have uh, stationed outposts of light. And Lord, we want to pray and lift them up as well. God, we're thankful for Mars Hill. Uh, Thank you for the witness that you have given to them, uh, Lord, in Granville and other places. God, we're grateful And we praise you for Crossroads Bible Church, Lord. I pray that you would bless Rod uh, as he leads that church. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for Brightside and for the witness they are in Caledonia. God, I pray that you would strengthen them and equip them for the work that you have for them. Thank you for Tabernacle Community Church and for our long partnership with them. Uh, Lord, we praise you, uh, God, for New City Church, for JT God, would you watch over him and Donet and bless their ministry and bless what's going on in the near Northeast. Lord, we're so grateful for Wellspring and for our dear friend, Steve Gibson, as he pastors uh, among others at that church. God, thank you for New Hope and what you're doing through Josh and Katie Mateer. Uh, Lord, would you bless them? Uh, Would you give them uh, opportunities to see many come to faith and to be a light in Rockford area? God, we're grateful for the local church. Uh, Lord, we're grateful for New Heart. Bless these churches, Lord. Thank you for Clarence and Leah as they're planning to plant another church uh, from Calvary and with Tabernacle. Lord, would you bless them as they make preparations to do that. And God, so many more churches in this city, uh, Lord, who are proclaiming your word. I pray this is a difficult time to be a church. It's a difficult time to be in ministry. Would you give them strength? Would you protect them? Would you let their light shine? I praise you, Lord, that we're not a single solitary light shining in the darkness, but we're a wall of light, Uh, Lord, that you've set up to bless not just Christians, but this whole city, Lord, and around the country and around the world, today, all over the world, your name will be proclaimed. Lord God, in every country that we know of, there will be believers gathering together, some in secret and some in open. Um, But they will be doing so because you, Jesus, are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that you would protect them. I pray pray that you would bless them. Lord, they too have difficulties and struggles and sufferings. Would you be near to them? God, we thank you that we can gather together and open your word just as they will be opening your word. And Lord, uh, we will be in different passages, perhaps different books of the Bible, but the same spirit, the same Lord, the same God. And so today, as we open and study Revelation 12, God, would you give us insight? This is a difficult chapter. Would you reveal to us what it is that you want to say? And Lord, each person who's come, uh, Lord, regardless of why they're here, may you speak to their hearts in unique and perhaps even unexpected ways. We ask you to do this, to show that you are indeed Lord. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are speaking together about our great enemy. He is known most often by the title Satan. First John tells us that the whole world is under his control. Jesus tells us that all the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations, that he is present and active at work everywhere. Whether himself personally or through demonic hordes that obey his commands, he is a terrifyingly frightful enemy. He is exceedingly powerful. He has the ability to tempt, to deceive, to attack. Jesus says and calls him the evil one, there is no good in him, he is the father of lies. There is no mercy, there is no kindness, there is no compassion. Even those who choose to worship him, his sole goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. He opposes everything that God is doing. He is active now even in this church and around the world, seeking to attack, longing to tempt, powerful to deceive. The good news, however, is that this great enemy, though he is almost infinitely powerful, falls before God's truly infinite power and love. And this morning, we get to tell the story of Satan. But the story of Satan is really the story of our God's great love and his incredible power. And as we come to understand Satan's future, we learn better how to have victory over him in the present and whatever spiritual warfare or difficulty you may be going through, I believe that God has a message for you and I today to understand better what is happening and how, through Jesus, we can have victory today as well as understand what's coming in the future. If you're not still in the book of Revelation or you didn't turn there, would you please turn to Revelation chapter 12 There's a Bible in the rack in front of you. Uh, If you take one of those Bibles, I can tell you confidently this week that it's page 998. And if you turn to page 998, uh, you'll be in Revelation chapter 12, right near the end of the Bible. Let me tell you, Revelation 12 is a confusing chapter. This is one of those chapters when I was away on my study leave and I got to Revelation 12, I thought, Lord, are you sure you want to do this book? Are you sure we're going after the right thing here? Revelation 12 is super confusing. It was one of the chapters that I spent the most time fasting and praying and was like, Lord, if you don't reveal what's going on here, I don't have any idea what I would say on a Sunday morning about this chapter. The Lord in his faithfulness and his kindness did reveal what I think is happening here. And in order to walk our way through it, because it is so confusing, I'm going to do something slightly unusual, at least for me, is I'd like to give us an outline this morning. So on the screen behind me, there's going to be an outline that we're going to just hopefully help us track with what's going on, because there's lots of two of this and three of that and four of those. And so hopefully the outline will uh, keep us focused and understanding what's happening. The first thing we need to understand as we come to this chapter is there are two clues that really unlock what's going on in this passage. If we don't understand these clues, the chapter doesn't make much sense. The first clue is that there are two signs. In the chapter, verse one and verse three describe for us signs. Signs are symbols, they symbolize things. And we need to understand what these signs are signifying or what they are pointing to. The first sign is in verse one. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Now, as you go through the rest of the chapter, you heard Terry and Nancy read it to us, perhaps on first reading, you hear that this woman ends up giving birth to Jesus. And so you might naturally assume that the woman is Mary. It's not. This is a sign. And the woman is a sign symbolizing something else. A sign points to something different than itself. And although Mary does give birth to Jesus, this sign points to something bigger than Mary. And the clue to understanding what it is is the description. She's clothed with the sun, the moon, and 12 stars. This is actually an allusion to a dream from a long time ago from a man named Joseph whose father's name is Jacob or Israel, he gets called both Jacob or Israel, and Joseph had a dream a long time ago, and that dream is recounted for us in Genesis 37. Listen, Joseph said, I had another dream, and this time, the, pay close attention, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He's the 12th star. When he told his father this, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother, the sun, and I, the moon, and your brothers, the 12 stars, bow down to the ground before you? This language, sun, moon, and 12 stars, is a reference to the nation of Israel. The person who Joseph is talking to and is engaging with here is a man who is renamed Israel and the nation of Israel comes from him. So while it is true that Mary gives birth to Jesus, what's on sight here is the fact that Mary is an Israelite and it's really the nation of Israel that the woman in Revelation 12 is a symbol of. If you read this chapter and you think the woman is Mary, it gets super confusing. If you realize it is the nation of Israel and that Jesus the Messiah is coming from the nation of Israel, it makes a lot more sense as you go through the chapter. There's a second sign, and that's in verse three. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns On its head. This sign is explained to us in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. So, Satan is not a dragon. In John's vision, a dragon is used as a symbol to point to Satan. And so, two signs a woman which is the nation of Israel, and a dragon, which represents Satan. This chapter is mostly about Satan. And so what we have then is a second clue to understanding what's going on in the chapter. First clue, two signs. Second clue is that in Revelation 12, John is seeing four separate scenes. You can think of it this way. Imagine that John walked into an art gallery and there are four separate paintings hanging on the wall of the art gallery. What John is doing for us is he's simply describing what he sees in scene number one, and then he moves to scene two, which is not related to scene one, and he describes what he sees there. He does it for scene three and scene four. And these four scenes are scenes from the life of Satan. And this is his story as John sees it in visual form. So let's walk through these four scenes. If you think they're all one scene, if you think this is just one thing happening, Revelation 12 is super confusing. If you recognize four separate distinct scenes from the life of Satan... It makes a lot more sense. Okay, so imagine we're standing with John in front of painting number one. It's in the first half of verse four. This is scene number one that John sees. Speaking now of the dragon or Satan, its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. Now, if we were renumbering the Bible because these verse numbers are not inspired by God, they were added later, we would stop verse four right here because scene one stops right in the middle of verse four. And what it is depicting is the fall of Satan. This is a scene from before the beginning of creation of humanity where Satan, who is pictured as this dragon, An angelic being leads a rebellion against God and causes a third of the angelic host to be deceived and to follow him in his pride and arrogance. This one third of the original created angelic host is what we now know of as demons and Satan leads them astray. Scene one is happening very early on before humans are even created. Now, the Bible doesn't talk much about Satan's fall, but there is a little more information about it. We're not gonna cover it this morning, but you're free to look at it on your own. In the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, especially the middle section, There the king of Tyre is a symbol for Satan and God describes a little more Satan's fall. But here in Revelation 12, the first scene that John views is the fall of Satan, scene number one. John then moves us to scene number two, which is not connected to scene number one. Scene number two begins in the middle of verse four. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who, quote, will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. This second scene is painting a second scene in Satan's life, and it is Satan's engagement with Jesus. In his first coming, the male child that is born is Jesus. This is why we initially might think it's Mary who's the woman, but Jesus is being born to the nation of Israel. Satan tries to kill Jesus when he is just a baby. He has all of the babies in the city of Bethlehem who are born anywhere near the time of Jesus executed because he's trying to kill Jesus. He does not succeed. He does, however, succeed in crucifying Jesus on a cross. He is raised from the dead and ascends to heaven. That's the snatched up to God's throne. And the quote, he will rule all nations with an iron scepter. This is a quote that was given to Israel, the man, that one of his descendants will be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This is Jesus, a descendant of Israel, who in his ascension is now currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God with all authority and power. So scene number two is Satan's interaction with Jesus during Jesus' first coming. We now move to scene three, which is not connected to scenes one or two. And actually we're now moving into the future and the clue for that is in verse six. The number 1260 days is assigned to us. That's three and a half years. And we have moved forward now to the first part of the tribulation, which is coming in the future. Scene one and scene two are in the past from our point of view. Scene three and scene four are in the future from our point of view. Scene three, verse seven, then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough and they lost their place in heaven The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Now John is describing it as if it was past tense, but he's doing that because he's simply describing scene three the same way he did scene two and scene one. He's looking at the picture and he's describing what he's seeing. What he sees is something coming in the future in the first half of the tribulation when Satan wages war against God. There is a war in heaven with Satan leading the charge and at the end of that war, Satan is defeated and cast out of heaven, never to be allowed to return again. Now you might think in scene one, Satan got cast out of heaven, never to be allowed to return again, but that's not the case. In the book of Job, for example, Satan and God have a conversation about Job in heaven. They're in heaven having that conversation. That happens long after scene one, even in verse 10 of our passage, second half of verse 10, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Meaning that right now, Satan has access to heaven and what he does in heaven currently is he accuses us. He reminds God right now of all our sins and our failings and our shortcomings. There is coming a day in the future when he will wage war in heaven during the tribulation, he will lose and he will be thrown out of heaven and never allowed back in again. That's scene three. Scene four takes place in verses 13 to 17. There's lots of details there which are not as important for what we're doing this morning. You can read those on your own. Uh, It was read, Terry and Nancy read them for us earlier. Scene four takes place during the great tribulation. After Satan is cast down from heaven, he goes on a three and a half year rampage on the earth. And that's the fourth scene from Satan's life. Scene one, Satan's fall. Scene two, Satan's interaction with Jesus at his first coming. Scene three, the future war in heaven. And scene four, the future rampage of Satan upon the earth. Now, why have we gone through all of this? Why did God give us this chapter for us today? I don't think it's simply so we can be informed about the future. This has as much in it about the past as it does about the future. What is the relevance for us today? I think there are three things that God wants us to take from this passage to help us in the spiritual warfare we experience now, in our engagements with Satan now. Number one, God wants us to understand our enemy. He is first and foremost referred to as Satan. The word Satan is simply the Hebrew word for adversary. He is called our enemy. Jesus says he is the evil one. He seeks to steal kill and destroy. There is no mercy in him. There is no kindness in him. There is no compassion in him. He wants only to destroy. He opposes everything that God does. He wants to destroy God's creation and especially you and I, human beings made in the image of God, and he works with all his power, all his might, and all his demonic hordes to oppose everything that God is doing. And if you have God present in your life in any way, Satan wants to oppose that. And if you do not yet have Jesus and do not know Jesus, Satan is fighting hard to keep you from seeing that Jesus is the savior of the world. He is first and foremost, Our enemy. He is never an ally. He is never a friend. No matter what you might think, he never comes to help. Always to destroy. He also is called, in verse 9, the devil. Satan means adversary. That's Hebrew. The devil is the word diabolos. Some of you who know Spanish might hear the phrase el diablo. Diabolos literally in Greek means slanderer. So when you see the English word devil, it is a reference to the fact that Satan is a slanderer. He slanders God and he slanders us. He's called the accuser of the brothers and sisters. Right now, all he does is he stands in God's presence and points out all our failings and all our sins and all our shortcomings. And in our own ears, we constantly hear him reminding us how far we fall short, how little we deserve what God has done for us. He is a slanderer, the devil, constantly telling us how worthless we are, how little we deserve God's love, what failures, what sinners, what abject, total rejects we are. He's also called, in verse nine, that ancient serpent. That's a reference to Genesis three. The snake who comes and leads Adam and Eve astray. Now, what's really fascinating is if you go back at some point and read Genesis three, you might be familiar with the story, Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. And God says, don't eat anything of the tree of life. You can have all the other trees and joy. I created this entire world for you. Enjoy everything you want, but don't eat eat the fruit from that tree. A talking snake comes and convinces Eve that she should eat that fruit and convinces Adam as well. Now, the fascinating thing is we all know that the snake is Satan. Except Genesis 3 doesn't actually tell us that. Satan's name is never used. He's not called the devil. He's not called... He's never identified except as a serpent. And in fact, the only place where we come to understand that the serpent is Satan is right here. This is the only passage that explains to us what was going on in the Garden of Eden. And the point is, Satan is the deceiver. He does not come in a form you would recognize him. He does not announce to Adam and Eve, oh, I was one of the chief angels. I led the rebellion of the angelic hosts against God. He does not announce himself to Eve and Adam that way and say, why don't you come and join me? Nor does he do that in our lives. He does not show up how we might expect him to be. He is present in our world and in our lives, but does not reveal himself because he's a deceiver. That's what the ancient serpent, that's what that language, means. Jesus says he is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. And when he speaks truth, it is half truth designed to deceive and to lie. This is why many, perhaps in the church today, in the country, in the world, think that our enemy is are people of other races or from other countries. This is why many think the enemy is those of a different political party than they are. This is why many think that the enemy is another person who thinks differently than we do or thinks differently than you do or has a different background or does something differently than you do. That is the deception of Satan. Our enemy is hiding himself. It's not people of a different political party. It's not people from other countries. It's not people with other outlooks on life. It is Satan who is the enemy and the deceiver, and he refuses to show himself. And the only way you can know he's present is when God reveals it. He comes like a talking snake. And it's only when God pulls back the curtain and says, you thought the snake was your enemy, but he's not. This is Satan coming in disguise because he is your enemy. He is a slanderer and he is a deceiver. The second thing I think God wants us to know from this passage about how Satan will be defeated in the future is to share with us how he is defeated in the present because the same how he's defeated in the future is how we experience victory over him today. Verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? The blood of the lamb, this is Jesus' blood shed on the cross. And what it means is, how do you and I experience victory over Satan today? By understanding that we were purchased by God through the blood of Jesus. If you are a believer in Jesus, God essentially purchased you with his blood, not with something cheap like silver or gold or money, but with the precious blood of Jesus, which means you and I belong to God. That is where the victory over Satan comes. You don't belong to him. And when the Bible tells us the whole world is under his control, that's a frightening statement. But the good news is you don't belong to this world. You don't belong to Satan. You don't belong to pornography. You don't belong to alcohol. You don't belong to anger. You don't belong to your family. You don't belong to your workplace. You don't belong to this country. You don't belong to the people who want to harm you. You don't even belong to yourself. You belong to God. You are His. He's bought you. And he will never leave you or forsake you. And he will never give you up. And there is nothing that Satan could ever offer God that he would be willing to trade you for. And there is nothing that you could do, whether good or bad, that will separate you from God's love for you. The blood of Jesus gives us victory over Satan because there is nothing Satan can do about the fact that you belong God the blood of Christ also reminds us that we are cleansed from our sins that if you have accepted Jesus by faith not just well I'm a Christian I go to church if you have accepted that Jesus is Lord all of your sins all of my sins past present and future are forgiven by God how does that give us victory over Satan What good is an accuser who has nothing to accuse you about? What can he say? How will he slander you? This is one of his most powerful things is to remind us, remind us we are failures, to remind us of all the ways we have let God down, to show us all the ways we have fallen short, but the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all that stuff, and God's response back to Satan is, they are clean. Not because of anything we did, not because of anything we earned, but because God chose to purchase us for himself. And the blood of Christ sets us free from all Satan's accusations. God has sworn, and he cannot lie, that he will remember our sins no more. And when you take an accuser and a slander and you take away his ammunition and his accusations, he has no more power. So God wants us to understand that we triumph over Satan, first of all, by the blood of Christ. Second of all, part two of the victory, by the word of their testimony. What does that mean, the word of their testimony? The next phrase explains it. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Also the end of verse 17 those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. He's talking about obedience and faith. In scene one, Satan defeats Adam and Eve because he convinces them to disobey God. He lies to them and says, oh, if you eat this fruit, it's going to be great for you. He lies to them and says, God is withholding good from you when the truth of the matter is no good thing does God withhold from those he loves. He lied to them and convinced them to disobey God and once they disobeyed, then he had power over them. But in scene two, He tried the exact same thing with Jesus. He tried to get him to put his interests above God, the Father's, and in the wilderness. What did Jesus say each and every time to Satan? I'm not in charge. This is what the Father has said. I am here to obey. And at the cross, at the Garden of Gethsemane, when Satan tries to scare Jesus to run away from the cross, Jesus cries out and says, not my will, but yours be done. That is the thing that gives victory over Satan now. You see, I've had my own battles with Satan and I will testify that he is a terrifyingly powerful enemy and that during a particular season of many years of panic attacks, in the midst of that season, I experienced an onslaught from Satan and I will just tell you that despite all of my training, despite all of my theology, despite all of my experience, my knees buckled And when he puts you in the crosshairs and he comes after you, you come to realize he is devastatingly powerful. And I tried, I tried to put up my shield of faith and I tried to swing my sword of the spirit and I prayed and other people prayed and I quoted scripture and I tried to run away and I did everything you would try to do to try to have some sort of victory over Satan. And all it did and the very best things, the prayer and the scripture, all it did was simply hold him a little bit at bay. Until God explained to me in the middle of some really dark stuff, there's something more fundamental than all this armor. And it's James 4, 6. It's Revelation twelve eleven. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he has to flee from you. The thing Satan can withstand, scripture verses and prayer. It holds him at bay, But he stays in the fight. Where he cannot stay is where there is obedience, where there is submission to God. If at work, things are going terribly, and you're having a bad experience. If you say to yourself, I deserve better than this. I should be paid more than this. I should have a better job than this. I shouldn't be going through this. Did you hear who the subject of all of those sentences was? I, 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 I. That's exactly what Satan got Adam and Eve to do. I deserve to eat this fruit. I deserve to know what God knows. I deserve to be able to obey what I want to obey and disobey what I want to obey. When you are the subject of the sentence, that's when Satan owns you. But if you say to him, if you say to God, this isn't the job I wanted. This isn't turning out the way I wanted. This isn't going the way I wanted to go but I'm here to obey. Not my will, but yours be done. Satan has to flee in those circumstances. He cannot stand. If you've been given a difficult health diagnosis and you say to God, I deserve better than this. Why do I have to go through this and they don't? Why did you let me get this? What could I have done to prevent this from happening? Satan will come after you with bitterness and with anger and with depression and discouragement. And if instead you say back to God, I don't want this. I don't want this assignment. I don't want this disease. I don't want to walk this road. I don't want the chemo. I don't want the radiation. I don't want the difficulty. I don't want the shame. I don't want whatever it is. But I'm here to obey Not my will, but yours be done. Satan has to flee. That's not just holding him at bay. That gives you victory over him. They triumphed over him, not simply by quoting scripture and not simply by praying. Those are important part of the warfare. They triumphed over him by understanding I am bought with a price. I belong to God. All my sins are forgiven and I am here to obey. This isn't going the way I want it to go, but I choose to obey. If you do those things, Satan has no power over you. He must leave you alone. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to take just a little bit of time and the quietness of where we're seated and do a little bit of warfare with Satan. So you can close your eyes if you'd like, you can leave them open however you feel comfortable. What I'd like you to do is I'd like you just think about a situation in which you're experiencing or could experience some spiritual warfare. Meaning is there a situation, are you struggling with lust, with pornography, with temptations like that? Is alcohol just a monster that you cannot slay? Is there some area of life in which you're still feeling guilty for sins from your past in which you're being reminded over and over again of failings or shortcomings? Is there an assignment that God's given you to do, maybe to share the gospel with somebody and you're terrified to do it? Is there something that God has placed in your life at work or at school that seems to be this giant that is consuming your energy and causing you all sorts of fear? Think about that thing for just a moment. Take just a second and come up with what that is. You got something? Okay, now what I want you to do is to think about that thing. Could be trouble in marriage. Could be difficulty in relationship. Whatever that thing is, where you're like, I feel the attack of Satan. Maybe friends around you have told you that you're being deceived by Satan and you don't see it. But now you're starting to wonder, is maybe, am I maybe being deceived? Whatever that thing is, I want you to first think about that thing in relation to the blood of Christ. That you belong to God. That whatever that trouble is, whatever that sin is that owns you, whatever that mistake is that you've made in the past, whatever is the struggle that you feel in your personality, whatever the thing you're most dreading going back to work tomorrow and having to face, I want you to think about the fact that you belong to God. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. You are his. Satan actually has no power over you. The situation is out of control, but God has you right where he wants you. I want you to think for a minute, if there's any mistakes or sins, if you're thinking to yourself, man, if I just hadn't made this choice, I wouldn't be in this mess. If you're thinking, if I had just realized and not done that, I want you to think about the fact that if you confess those things to Jesus, even if they seem like they're the reason you are where you are, that God forgives you and fights for you and not against you. now while you're still thinking about that same situation, I want you to think if there's any selfishness, any self-centeredness, any I, 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 I that's showing up in that situation. Is there something where perhaps you're continuing to beat yourself up over mistakes you've made in the past? Because I don't want to be forgiven. I don't want to let this go. I don't want to forget all that I've done. I want to make sure that I never do it again. Whereas to submit to God is to accept, even though I don't feel forgiven, I choose to accept forgiveness. Has Satan deceived you? Is he tempting you with self-harm? Has he convinced you that this world is better off without you? You may even feel that in your soul. Are you willing to submit to God? The fact that you are here is proof that God doesn't think the world is better off without you. He thinks the world is better with you. Will you submit and accept that to be true whether you feel it or not? Maybe you're experiencing spiritual warfare around issues related to gender or sexuality. I feel this way. I want to act this way. I want to engage with these kinds of things. Are you willing to submit to God and say, this is how you've made me. This is the path that you've set me on. These are the rules for how sexuality is supposed to work. Is there some assignment that God's given you to share the gospel with a friend, perhaps? And you're thinking, if I do this, I'm going to look like a fool. They're going to reject me. They're gonna hate what I have to say. It's gonna be too hard. It's going to be too difficult. Is there some sense in which this morning you hear the Lord saying to you, just obey, just do what I'm asking you to do. In this area that you're thinking of, do you feel like this is not how I want life to go? I want to be married, but I'm not. I want to have kids, but we don't. I want to be younger, but I'm getting older. I want to be healthy, but I feel sick. I want to be financially well off, but I'm struggling. I want to have lots of relationships, but I'm lonely. I want to be influential and used in people's lives, but I feel like I'm just spinning my wheels. Is there a sense in which you are saying, this is not the way I wanted life to work. And are you willing to say back to God, but this is the path you've chosen for me. Not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray together. Father, who can even understand where our enemy is present in our lives, except that you reveal him to us. He's trying to hide himself even now as our minds and hearts reach out to try to discern what's going on. But you Lord are greater, you Lord are stronger. God, for those who are not yet Christians, Lord, would they please come to understand no allegiance with Satan will turn out well he will seek, kill, and destroy. Lord, but the blood of Christ rescues us from all our sins. Lord, I pray that my brothers and sisters here this morning would know that they belong to you, that you love them, that you will never leave them or forsake them. And God, in whatever areas of our lives, we have been tempted to say, I, 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 I. Lord, would we instead triumph over the evil one by saying, here we are, Lord, we've come to do your will. Help our unbelief, give us courage to walk down this path. May your will be done, Father, and not our own. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.